Hello there, I'm Toby Haydoke, and we mustn't diddle about here. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about enjoying danger and the pitfalls of curiosity. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your rels from your pels, then you're extremely welcome on this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's an episode which finds one half of the TARDIS crew going down, down, deeper and down, and the other half looking to upset the status quo above ground. But it all ends with a sequence which puts the hang into cliffhanger. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, the ordeal, or, all right then, don't look before you leap. First broadcast on the 25th of January, 1964, at 5.15pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman, with John Lee as Aladdin and Philip Bond as Ganatus. It was written by Terry Nation, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Richard Martin. It was watched by 10.4 million people, and the audience appreciation was 63. With Elian dead, Ian and Barbara's party press on, but encounter further peril and difficult passages to traverse as they enter the cave section of the mountainside. The Doctor and Susan help the rest of the Thals to distract the Daleks' antenna atop their city, and the old man sabotages an exterior control panel which triggers a malfunction inside the city. He and Susan are captured by the Daleks, who state that their ultimate intention is to wipe out the Thals. In the caves, a terrified Antidus triggers a rockfall which blocks any hope of return. The only way for the party to go forward is to jump a huge chasm. The When Pre-production, September to November 1963. The original set breakdown calls for several new sets this week. A ridge, an interior of cave, an interior of end cavern, a third section of cave, inside of city walls, and a section of cliff face. The interior of cave is described as a dark, craggy cavern, walls slope out, small tunnels in end wall, a large boulder to secure rope, and note, special effects, huge white spiders. The third section of the cave is noted as a very large set. Roof section to fall in, it says. Edge of chasm, ledge opposite side of cavern, cavern in two sections, divided by chasm. The original design breakdown for this episode requests just a small patch of swamp. We won't be there long, just to write off Elian's chances of survival, so it is unwise use of space to have a large recreation of last week's Lakeside of Mutations. 
Another small set, because the actors are mainly seated and not moving, is the rock and bush and backing where the Doctor, Susan and Aladon spy on the city. Other than the Dalek instrument room, the rest of the sets are new. The cave gets the most description. The actors travel through this, so several views will be needed. They are travelling through a mountain. This is the situation dramatically. And the cave has been created by nature rather than human being. That it is more a large fissure than a cave as such. The top of it may be too high to see and it will be dark except for the torches of the actors. There is a section of wall and doorway. This is a city wall, a small acting area. Above the doorway must be a light that goes on and off. Back in the caves, there is a scene described as rocks hurtling down in the cave scene. A situation is called for where rocks nearly fall upon the actors in the cave. There is another section of wall. Actors are now inside the city. This is not a large acting area, but several actors and two Dalek machines are called for to appear. Although there is not a great deal of movement then, this must be allowed for. And for the final sequence we have in this clearly very early planning document, the cave too, for which not all of the practicalities have yet been decided. And thanks Design Guy, there's a whacking great spoiler for episode 7. A situation is called for where a chasm appears and has to be crossed inside the cave itself. Whether it is intended to use Rostra for this or devote a sequence of film is not for me to say. There is also a shot of an actor hanging onto a rope, suspended down into the chasm. He cuts the rope and falls. The special effects pre-production document anticipates the need for just a spider, not the many huge white spiders originally aimed for, on page 13 of an early version of a script that we no longer have. So we can only guess what the spider got up to, but it presumably was something not very nice. The working title for this episode is The Caves of Terror. 14th of October, 1963. When planning the filming, there are only two short segments required for this episode, apart from the played-in reprise from last week. The first is the waterbags floating on the whirlpool to indicate the fate of Zor, later Elian, and the second is Ven, later Antidus, dangling at the end of the rope in the chasm. 28th of October. Filming starts on the story. Sometime between now and November the 1st, the shot of the waterbags floating on the whirlpool complete with a smoking effect created by adding rosin to water, is today, for the insertion into the early action of the episode. 29th of October. The other filming required for this episode, the scene in which Ven hangs from the rope down the deep ravine, is done today. And for this scene, which is shot on silent 35mm film, the character of Ven, later Antidus, is doubled by stuntman Peter Diamond. 12th of December. On behalf of Christopher Barry, Susan Pugh asks BBC Allocations for an experienced inlay operator for this episode. It has, she says, at least one very complicated inlay shot, as well as the usual captions. The complication comes from the team's desire to show a wide shot of the travellers in the cave system. Wednesday the 18th of December. 
many of the Dalek voices for the ordeal are pre-recorded by Peter Hawkins and David Graham today. But Hawkins will also be present in the studio for the recording of the episode. 19th of December. Meg Hornby asks that Rosin and Trey be available for the recording of this episode. Now, this material was used last week, mixed with water, in order to create a smoky effect. However, this week it is required for a different purpose. It is dusted on the soles of the actor's shoes so that they don't slip during a tricky sequence involving them jumping the chasm in the cave. She also asks for a 6x4 mirror to be supplied which will be slung according to a plan that she will send later. 30th of December. Everyone convenes again after the Christmas break because rehearsals begin for the ordeal at the Drill Hall, 236 Uxbridge Road, from 10am to 5pm. With Christopher Barry now no longer involved in the production, he has handed the reins over to Richard Martin, who has already previously handled episode 3. Martin uses a creeper camera at floor level in order to shoot the Daleks in a slightly different way and to try to overcome the limitations on visual options afforded by the large and hard-to-manoeuvre BBC cameras. Designer Ray Cusick is also having a break from Scaro. Jeremy Davis is fully responsible for this instalment, having helped out with some of the initial designing of the Dalek creatures. Of course, he has inherited the Dalek control room set and the swamp areas, so the only parts actually designed by him are the cave sets. 3rd of January 1964. The ordeal is camera-rehearsed, from 10.30am and then recorded at Lime Grove Studio D. Keen to be ambitious with his visuals, director Martin has incorporated a mirror into one of the sets in order to give otherwise tricky camera angles. The most ambitious sequence of this episode, however, is the inlay shot showing Ian and his party walking through the caves with the ground represented by a photo caption seamlessly incorporated into the characters moving along the set. The cramped confines of Studio D make this especially tricky. It's a long, narrow studio, and one of the smallest and least well-equipped available. Not ideal for making outer space fair with an ambitious director. 24th of January, the night before broadcast of the ordeal, a note of caution is sounded by the Kentish Mercury under the headline, Not Suitable for Children. I sometimes wonder what exactly the BBC television programmers have in mind when they put together the schedules for children's shows. While it is not my general practice to watch children's TV, it was in the guise of an exhausted father that I saw last Saturday's episode, and by the end of it, I was frankly amazed. I appreciate that the average blood and thunder is completely over the youngsters, but I would hazard a guess that there are quite a few boys and girls in the 6 to 10 age group who had a pretty disturbed night. For me, this programme has generated far more tension and skillfully underplayed horror than any of the Quatermass or other similar science fiction shows produced for adult viewing. I do not suggest that children's TV should be restricted entirely to Noddy and Sooty, but I do feel that the planners should give a little more thought to the reactions of younger children who watch these programmes. 25th of January. The ordeal is broadcast on BBC television. For the first time ever, Doctor Who pulls in more than 10 million viewers. It's only 10 weeks old, and it has doubled its audience. 
It is not Caroline Ford's only appearance on TV tonight. Immediately after the ordeal, she is a guest on Jukebox Jury, the popular panel show in which celebrity guests give their verdict on the latest pop hit hopefuls. Host David Jacobs, himself no stranger to science fiction, as he had featured extensively in the previous decade's Journey into Space radio series, describes her earlier antics as hair-raising adventure. 27th of January. Richard Sear, in the Daily Mirror, describes the episode as Splendid children's stuff. It has a lurid flavour, like any small boy's dreams of adventure. The latest episode finished with a smashing cliffhanger. One of the heroes screaming his head off at the end of a rope, dangling in an abyss. Ivor Jay, of the Birmingham Mail, offers a belated word of praise for the BBC's Doctor Who. For the sci-fi visual effects, at least, those meanie mutants with their breathless metallic voices are cute in a sinister fashion. Other characterizations are pretty insipid, though. Schoolboy mag types, only rather more boring. It's too early for the coinage of the phrase Dalek mania, but they're certainly causing a stir. On BBC Northern Ireland programme 610, viewer David Pempres tells Rupert Miller about building his own Daleks. 29th of January. The Doctor Who production office receives a request from the TV show Hi There for live broadcast on the 4th of February. They would like a Dalek. The host of the show, Rolf Harris, has not seen the creatures in action and attempts are made to arrange a screening of the ambush for him in order that he familiarise himself with the Daleks so that it is possible to facilitate a sketch in which he is revealed to be what is inside one. Peter Hawkins is booked to provide the voice of the Dalek as well, but ultimately the skit is abandoned, saving us from having to worry about whether, had it been preserved for posterity, it would have been allowed to appear on a Blu-ray box set or not. 30th of January. The Daily Mail notes, in a review of a recent episode of Z Cars written by Joan Clark, that What with an almost all-women production team on Martin Chuzzlewit and a woman producer for Doctor Who, not to mention the growing band of women drama directors, the monstrous regiment is really on the march. Bravo! Uh, there is context for the phrase monstrous regiment. It refers to the 1558 polemic by John Knox reigning against female monarchs and claiming that the rule of women is contrary to the word of the Bible. 1st of February. As the country waits for the broadcast of the final episode of the Daleks, the ordeal gets one more bit of coverage, with Peter Quince's television diary in the Huddersfield Examiner giving an account of the pressures thrust upon weekend timetabling thanks to this pesky new TV phenomenon. This one really has set my opinion poll sample by the ears. There were even some rather dicey moments when it looked as if long-awaited party invitations might be refused because acceptance would entail missing the next instalment. In the end, they were accepted, but only on the understanding that those who didn't go to the party watched Doctor Who and gave a verbatim account later of what had happened. The what? The ordeal takes up barely two pages of Terry Nation's initial 26-page storyline, which, just to remind you, is not split into episodes just yet. Ian examines the cliff face at the end of the lake. The tunnels that take the water into the city are fractionally below the surface of the flooded lake, 
the water goes down to the tunnels with great force, making travel along them impossible. But Ian can see a honeycomb of fissures above which he explores, reasoning that they might lead to the city. There is a difficult and dangerous traverse along the cliff, and one wrong foot could pitch you to certain death into the lake below, and the water writhes with black, shapeless creatures. After a few dead ends, with Ian about to lose hope, Athal reports a cave that goes much deeper, and they head deep into the mountain. In the ship, Doctor Who continues his studies of the civilization of Skaro before the Neutron War. The storyline then outlines the hardly suitable equipment the expeditionary party has. A flashlight from the ship, some candles and ropes made by the Thal. Ian is tempted to give up, but a landslide forces them on. They have no choice but to go forward. The heat increases as they descend deeper, making for a very uncomfortable journey. They edge along a seemingly bottomless chasm. Barbara is left to rest whilst the others go off in different directions, searching for options. This isn't good news for Barbara. In the darkness beyond the weak light of her candle, she hears a slithering sound, and her own childhood nightmare is fulfilled when she sees the giant spiders, white and bloated, starting towards her. So there isn't nearly so much of this instalment in the storyline, which perhaps illustrates why there is perhaps more jeopardy than plot this week. The perilous journey is needed, of course, and certainly adds to the adventuring nature of the tale, but there's not much story development as such. The opening is played in from a film recording of last week's cliffhanger, saving the production the trouble of bringing Gerald Curtis in just to kill him again, and indeed of having to credit or pay him for his contribution as Elian, which was all part of the previous instalment. The swamp area set is dressed with 350 square feet of turf, 36 clumps of swamp grass, 12 clumps of water reeds, 3 bales of peat and 6 sacks of mahogany sawdust, 36 potted palm trees, 6 rhododendron bushes, 24 potted ferns, 8 6-foot branches and 24 12-foot hanging creepers. In the rehearsal script, Ganatus was to speculate that Elian had been frightened and ran away in an attempt at optimism, but this is dismissed by Ian, who suggests that if that had been the case, Elion would surely have run to them. Instead, the team decide to go on with grim silence, the unspoken saying more than the Thal's hopeless optimism. Instead of Barbara calling Ian away, she was to say in the original script, Then let's go, Ian. I can't bear to think of him. When looking at the map, Susan pointing out the north, south, east and west is not in the script, nor is her correction of Aladdin's as-scripted observation about the position of the ventilators, or her grabbing the doctor and telling him to keep down. This must all have been worked out in rehearsal, as indeed must all the business and dialogue surrounding the binoculars. Also, Dione isn't originally in this scene. Her line about the Daleks having pictures originally belongs to Aladdin, who is accompanying the TARDIS travellers solo. It's obviously been decided to give slightly more to Virginia Wetherill to do. In the initial script, the time to construct the bomb is not 23 days. This is an alternative added later. We can't see what it was originally. When exploring with Ganatus, instead of hearing the sound of water as she does in the episode, 
Barbara was to feel a breeze from inside the cave on her cheek to give her a clue to the way they need to head. Ganatus seems to know the earth custom of ladies first in a section of dialogue that doesn't really make much sense. Do the Thowls know of earth people and their customs? Or has Barbara been whispering earth etiquette into Ganatus's ears during sleepy nights in the scary jungle of death? When Ganatus has squeezed through the opening, there is a recording break in order for Philip Bond to position himself on a new part of the set, hanging from a rope. The shot of Ganatus having slipped down to the lower level of the cave is achieved using a mirror high up and filmed to give the impression that the camera is above Philip Bond. It's not the last time Richard Martin will use a mirror to achieve an otherwise impossible camera position in order to be as visually ambitious as possible. The six-foot-four mirror is hung from the studio gantry. Only two of the Thal extras are required this week. Chris Browning seems to be the favourite one because he was also standing in for Aladdin in an earlier episode before we saw the rest of the Thals, and Katie Cashfield for the very short shot of them reflecting the evening light of their Thal mirrors to dazzle the Daleks' antenna. When the Doctor, Aladdin and Susan look to get into the city whilst the reflection interferes with the Dalek city antenna, Hartnell's line, let's not diddle about here, is, whilst sounding very like the kind of verbal mangling the actor would become famous for decades later, actually, as scripted, the word diddle and all. The second definition of diddle in the Oxford English Dictionary, albeit of North American provenance, is to pastime aimlessly or unproductively. Diddle. Aladdin's dialogue, in which he refers to the map, was different in the script. He was originally to say he knows the way the Doctor is indicating, the section of the wall where the travellers waited for Barbara earlier in the story, because I came this way with Temesis. At the end of the glorious inlay shot of Ian's party travelling along the cave tunnels, Ian was originally to say they would rest in half an hour. He says in a minute in the final version. Antidus, in his attempts to persuade Ganatus out of making him go any further, is initially to say, The whole thing's stupid. Indeed, on the page his dialogue is much more hysterical and reading it in black and white emphasises how Marcus Hammond instead opts for a more wheedling approach. He tries to manipulate his brother into letting him go rather than gibber in panic, and it's much more watchable than it might have been had he opted for terror from the get-go. Philip Bond, on the other hand, accidentally says, You must go back, when what he wants to say is almost exactly the opposite, but it's not important enough of a fluff to redo. The Doctor's description of the wiring running into the Dalek city was originally longer and also contained the line about the antennae that Susan takes in the final version of the episode. She also works out that they need to slide when opening the box, which is originally the Doctor's suggestion to her. When Susan asks how they are going to cut the wire, Aladdin originally had quite a witty rejoinder. Can I ask how are we going to cut it quickly? but this was dropped, boring old Aladdin. He gains a new line, however, when he tells the travellers he'll try to come back to them before he exits. The Doctor's observation that the Thal gets so agitated is also an addition. The Doctor's dialogue about the key, 
I can always make another one, is not in the script, and he is supposed to break the glass of the panel with his shoe. He's also supposed to hold the keychain in his hand as he places it on the panel, not to use his cane. This business is clearly worked out in rehearsal, after someone had possibly pointed out that educating children about the best way to electrocute themselves is probably not part of the show's Rethian remit. The Doctor also has a much longer speech about the precise nature of the damage he has caused too. Susan's interjections are in the script, but not long enough, so Carol Ann Ford ad-libs a bit to underline the urgency of their egress, throwing in her own references to the Dalek's likely possession of a fault locator. After the Daleks close in on the Doctor and Susan, and that white light bathes them again, there is a recording break. Ian and Ganatus's dialogue, as they assess the nature of the ravine, is different in the script and clearly tweaked to match the set. Everything about the cleft of the rock we see on screen is not on the page. The moment where they both, in unison, offer to jump first is clearly added by the two actors in rehearsal and provides a nice moment between the two men. Ian's abandoned first run prior to his successful jump is also an addition. Russell working really hard to inject little bits of realism into his character's heroics. Bond, too, is working hard. Just look at the smile of approval he gives when he has thrown the torch. The torches, by the way, were not in the storyline. They used candles to light their way. Naked flames in a studio are a pain. Plus, within the drama, the danger of them blowing out would be a tedious barrier to expedition. The script says that the Daleks all chant about being masters of Skaro together. In the event, they aren't quite all on the same page. When we come back to Ian's party in the script, Barbara has already jumped. The script starts with her landing. So it's a script that clearly underestimates Jacqueline Hill, who in the programme jolly well does jump, and no mistake. Also, it's easier to time if we go from before she jumps rather than cut to her mid-landing. Oh, and Ian doesn't say good girl in the final episode as he does in the script, presumably to avoid a slap. All that good work is undone though because the business of her facing the wrong direction and having to be cave-splained by Ian is an addition worked out in rehearsal, as is her not being able to reach and needing a bit of encouragement from her colleague slash future husband. She gets her revenge on the cave, though, by snapping off a piece of it with her hand, leaving a visible white mark as she goes round, because it's actually made of polystyrene. There seems to be a kind of pounding sound when Antidus is tying the rope around himself, winding himself up with nervousness. It's not quite music, not quite special sounds. Are they in his head? The script says, There are great shadows and echoing voices, which means this abstractness is deliberate and there to reflect the turmoil in Antidus's mind. When Antidus jumps across the chasm, the script says that his hands clench and unclench, his face is contorted with fear, he wipes his brow, then with all of his courage compressed into one moment that will never return, he runs. When he makes it over but falls, the script says Ian on his knees grabs at the rope after it pays out after Antidus. He is able to slow the fall, but the rope running through his hands burns his palms. The action can't quite be pulled off in that way, but they do a pretty decent job as a compromise. 
They also allow it to happen without the scripted dialogue, which was to have Ian spell out their predicament as he is gradually pulled nearer to the edge. Antidus, try to get near the wall. Get a foothold. Take the weight off for a minute. We were also to have heard from Ganatus, telling Ian to hold on and that he is on his way. The episode was scripted to end on the telecine of the hanging Antidus, rather than on Ian clinging to the rocks. The Who Jonathan Crane Jonathan Crane, like Gerald Curtis in the last instalment of Too Much Information, is one of a small handful of Doctor Who actors about whom we know very little at all. In fact, with Crane, playing the role of friendly, gentle giant Christas, we know even less than we do about Curtis. Crane was educated at Oxford University, where he was a member of the Oods, the famous dramatic society that has produced so many famous names. At the time of the Daleks, he was represented by Eric Lepine-Smith, agent to William Hartnell. The year after his Doctor Who appearance, Crane performed in a season at the Shanklin Theatre on the Isle of Wight, and the following year he was in Panto, Babes in the Wood, in Plymouth. And that's it. The two addresses the BBC have for him don't match anyone registered to them in the census or the electoral roll from this period. Jonathan Crane is, of course, not an easy name to search for. Both words are quite common. And it is even harder now that it's everywhere as the alter ego of Batman villain the Scarecrow. Thanks, Batman. Now, registered at one of the addresses we have for him on the Daleks' paperwork, 53A Barkston Gardens in southwest London, there is a John Tarapovale registered in 1963 and 1964. Now, this is very helpful. It's a much less common name, Tarapovale. Maybe that could lead us somewhere. Except it, the name John Tarapovale, never appears anywhere else in any British census. Births, marriages and deaths, or electoral registers. Never anywhere ever again. Equity and the BBC also, as with Gerald Curtis, see last episode, have no records and indeed have no idea where to send royalties to Mr Jonathan Crane. So the extra few quid he's due for being in one more episode than he expected has never reached him. Nor has any of the money from physical releases or repeats of episodes of the Daleks over the years. So it seems that Curtis and Crane have both vanished into the ether. Now, don't go thinking this is a common occurrence. Of all the credited actors in Doctor Who, there are only a small handful whose fates are a mystery. It's just that two of them are from this story. Searching for them has definitely been an ordeal. Virginia Wetherill. With Virginia Wetherill playing Dione, we have much more luck. Virginia was just 20 when she played Dione in the Daleks. She was born in Farnham, Surrey, on the 9th of May 1943, the daughter of fashion designer Mary Wetherill, who was also the first female makeup artist ever employed in the UK and who worked at Pinewood Studios. So young Virginia accompanied her to the studios every day, spending time in makeup, wardrobe, and hair departments learning studio etiquette and soaking it all in. 
Her grandfather was a film producer who at one point lived at Pinewood Studios, so she considers the film industry to be in her blood. Her father, who was an orphan, was killed at the end of the Second World War, and when her mother remarried, Virginia went to boarding school in the UK after the family moved to Mauritius. She had an Egyptian great-grandfather and relatives who were Siamese. She describes her background as... Mongrel, much more interesting. She attended the Arts Educational Drama School and was cast in a commercial immediately upon leaving and at 17 was living in Notting Hill and in the heart of the swinging 60s. Her first proper acting job was two days in an uncredited role in the Bob Monkhouse film Dentist in the Chair, 1960. She gradually worked her way into the business and up and by 1963 she was working on screen a lot with bit parts and walk-ons on film and decent roles on television, including a guest spot on Moonstrike in June 1963, in an episode which also featured William Russell. For her performance in Moonstrike, she received a super review from the Daily Mirror, hailing her cool performance with a toughness that was impressive. By Christmas 1964, though, it wasn't her acting ability that the papers were slavering about. In December, the Liverpool Echo noted that Virginia has made a name for herself in such TV shows as Doctor Who and No Hiding Place, but that now she wants to reach the big screen. Poses like this one, it said, referring to a shot of Wetherill displayed on a rug, should help her quest. The same publication couldn't contain its joy when she joined the cast of popular TV show The Troubleshooters in 1967. The producer, Peter Graham Scott, did nothing to dampen their ardour. The character she's playing is that of a present-day sex symbol and a composite of all the great glamour girls of past show business. The sad thing about sex symbols is that they're tragic figures with no real heart. Ginny Wetherill, described in the article as a newcomer, is allowed to speak for herself too. I'm meant to be sexy, intelligent, witty, lovely, bright and feminine. As for herself... I'm not a girl who likes clubbing and looking for the swinging scene bit every night. And I'm not free and easy, like Julie. Her character in The Troubleshooters... I'm not over keen on miniskirts. I would be, but I haven't got the knees. I think I look like a boxer when I wear one. But I do have a strong sense of humour. If viewers like to accept me as a sex symbol, then I'll be delighted. This is the best part I've had on TV. In some publicity for the show, she was pictured in a chair that was originally designed as a hip bath, something that she had picked up in an antique shop and repurposed into something rather cool and interesting. And this would give a clue as to her future career. After the troubleshooters, she divided her time between TV and film, specialising on the big screen, playing imperiled women in Hammer films, although her role as stage actress in A Clockwork Orange involved spending her scenes topless as a temptation for Malcolm McDowell's Alex, whilst behind the scenes she taught her leading man how to belch, something he needs to do convincingly for key scenes of the movie. Killed by the actor Ralph Bates in 1971's Dr Jekyll and Sister Hyde, she fell for him in real life and cheekily asked him for a lift into shooting, and they became friends. Later, when Ralph's marriage had ended, the two of them got together and eventually married and had two children, Daisy, later an actress, and Will, now a composer. Invited as a guest onto the antique show Going for a Song, 
Virginia impressed everyone with her knowledge and was invited back very quickly. Her first appearances, by the way, had been alongside Doctor Who and the Daleks movie time traveller Peter Cushing. Her success on this show was because Virginia's other great talent is antiques, and having done her fair share of waitressing, painting and decorating and cabaret in between acting jobs, she saw a shop space underneath a friend's flat that was going wanting and decided to use it to sell off some of the, in her words, decorative junk that was in her flat and some pieces from her mother's house which needed to be offloaded and she set up her stall in the shop space hoping to cover the £20 a week rent. She was filming the movie Demons in the Mind at the same time and juggling other commitments but the shop became a haunt for the trendy and creative, selling materials and antiques and refashioned clothing and furniture that she'd renovated. The secret to the success of the place was Virginia's eye for interesting items and her ability to do them up. She strolled round markets, she went to Paris and... I could go anywhere and I could find something for a fiver and sell it for £100. After she had cleaned, restored or remade it. With Ralph busy acting, he went on to star in Poldark and Moonbase 3 and Dear John. Having two itinerant thespians in the family wasn't practical and so Virginia spent more and more time with the shop, Virginia's, which remained open for 43 years, later specialising just in the clothing side of things. Her customers included Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Donna Karen, Liv Tyler, Barbara Streisand and Donatella Versace, for whom she sourced and remodelled clothing. Her life was turned upside down when Ralph was diagnosed with incurable pancreatic cancer at the age of 50. He was appearing in Run For Your Wife in the West End, but had to go into hospital in January 1991, and he died in the March, aged just 51. He died peacefully in my arms, said Virginia at the time. He kissed me and died. As a result, she set up the Ralph Bates Pancreatic Research Fund. It is still running today, raising money to provide research into the causes, and of course cures, for pancreatic cancer. Virginia's testimonial for the charity says, When Ralph was diagnosed as having cancer of the pancreas, I was told nothing could be done and he only had between six and eight weeks left to live. He was 50 years old, playing in the West End with a movie lined up for the autumn. He and our 13-year-old son, William, had enjoyed the summer together messing about in boats and he'd spent many evenings with Daisy, our daughter, helping her with lines for the TV series Forever Green. I couldn't believe this was happening to my family. Surely it wasn't true. Something could be done. But it couldn't. And in spite of the tremendous care at the Royal Masonic Hospital, the predictions were correct. Ten weeks and one day later, Ralph died. Virginia lives in a beautiful house in London, surrounded by some of the most amazing decorative junk imaginable. She still advises and sells, but no longer has the shop and has been doing up a house in Ibiza and travelling the world. She also remains active with the Ralph Bates Pancreatic Research Fund. And so now, as an extra bonus, here is Virginia in her own voice, recalling her time on Doctor Who, when she spoke to me in 2018. I was in the Doctor Who, which I have to say was in black and white, 
Um, and it was the uh, series that, I think it might have been series two, when they introduced the Daleks. And the Daleks were baddies, and I was a Thal, a goodie. Yeah. And I was Blighthead Mrs. Thal. And our people on our planet, we were all blonde. And um, and that's that's how I got into Doctor Who. And, I've, of course, was with the original. Yeah, well, it was, a, it was the second yeah. ever story. Yeah, so yeah. five... Five weeks in is this is the second story and uh, and the first appearance of the Daleks. So yeah. I mean, what, what was your reaction to them? Because nobody knew what they were. No, no <laughs> not not at all. Um, I don't know really. I mean, I just thought it was kind of they were quite quirky. These sort of little things on wheels that um, you know guys would get in and out of, and they ran around, and we had to be terrified of them. Um, but you know, being an actor, you do what you do, and you hit your mark, or you have your you know, you make sure you don't hit the camera. Um, but I remember we filmed it round Christmas time, and Verity Lambert, who was the producer, gave a Christmas party. And I was trying to find a present, and I thought, oh, I'll find a sort of a, a robot-y thing. And, uh, you know, camp it up and give it to her. Happy Christmas. And do you think I could find anything? When you think now of all the merchandise and the Daleks from, you know, chocolate Daleks to, I don't know, Easter egg holders and um, egg cups and whatever, uh, tea towels. But it was, I, I didn't find anything, you know, it didn't, didn't exist. Um, but you kind of get into it, you know, you know that this is the most terrifying thing that you've ever, because you're an actor. That's mm. what we do. We're paid to do, aren't we? Well, of course, it was the Christmas, because we look back on that time. What a, what a, what a time to be around because it was Doctor Who started the day after the assassination of President Kennedy so yes that's right I mean uh, turbulent and that's right. fascinating times yes I had I'd never thought of that of course um, and you I, of course had no idea that you were at the start of something that was going to be this well, massive show how did we ever know you know for, when you're an actor and you know it's the same with all the horror films that came later somebody called your agent calls and says oh you've been put up for you know, Taste of Blood of Dracula or The Curse of the Crimson Altar and um, it sounds quite good. It's only two weeks filming over in so-and-so and you think, that's oh, not really what I want to do, you know. I've got a theatre thing coming up or whatever, but it'll fit, it fit in nicely and so-and-so's working on it who you've worked with before and is fun and you do it. Fast forward all these years later... That's all I'm known for now is <laughs> yeah. Doctor Who and all the horror shit that I did, yeah. which, you know, was always fantastic fun. Um, but it was never taken seriously. You know, working at the World Court was much more serious and going on tour and remembering your lines and play for today at the BBC and whatever else it was that I did. Um, but there you go. And what about uh, the Doctor himself, William Hartnell? Do you have any memories of him? I do. He's a grumpy old <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, I remember there was a scene where I had to wear, we all wore these sort of little funny plastic costumes. And of course, don't forget, it was black and white. So it was always your costume, whatever you wore, were in tones. It was either very dark or very pale, and it couldn't be too pale. It couldn't be the same colour as your skin and all that kind of stuff. And I remember it was a sort of a grey-blue plastic thing. And on my head, I had like a little crown. I mean, I 
think now we'd call them a fascinator. Um, it's a little round thing with spikes on the top of my head, which was clipped onto my straight hair. And in the first shot, I'm bending over the cauldron and I'm like the dinner lady <laughs> and I'm turning something, a stew, you know, thal stew. And on action, I have to look up and talk to the doctor or the doctor's talking to me. And there were maybe four or five extras in thal identical costume. So on action, and in those days, you didn't go twice. You did it. You know, it was very, they were very strict. It was very, you know, you, you mumbled, you carried on. If you forgot your lines, which I have to say, Bill did frequently, but he mumbled along. Anyway, I was over my cooking pot and I put my head up and my headdress gets caught in the back of somebody else's, one of the extra's knickers. I'm afraid I started to laugh. I didn't know how to get out of it. And I'm turning my head one way and the other. And anyway, he was furious. And of course, he kind of lost the momentum. So when we went again, he dried. And it was kind of, it was a bad moment. But, you know, these things happen. So after that, we were never, I was always a bit of a threat. He had no sense of humour. He was old. I mean, he was lovely. Good actor. Um, but, you know, he was what you saw. And... I mean, it's I mean, it's it's hard enough in theatre when you've got so many things to think about. But when you're doing a similar sort of performance, but then you've got to hit marks and cameras yeah. and three, you've got to take into account two or three different cameras. It's quite. Well, I think we underestimate how technical acting on television was. It really actually. is, because of course you could never look at the camera, but you have to have a feel for it. At the same time, you're looking at that strip on the on the floor, which is your mark, and you know that you cannot go over or beyond or left or right you can only ever hit that mark because you're going to mask somebody else. Yeah. Um, and there weren't the, you know, there wasn't the technology that there is now. Anyway, it's all, yeah, it, I guess it, in a way it was hard. And it's funny because I know, I know you've done sort of various signings and things for our mutual friends, Phantom Films, and, and the last one that you were at, um, Philip Bond was at, who yes. sadly uh, died. Oh. Who, I mean, how extraordinary that you do a job with somebody and then 50 years later in a, yes. in a church hall in Chiswick, I there know. you are again. <laughs> that was extraordinary because I adored Philip. I mean, he was so handsome. He was such a good actor and so lovely off camera and, you know, always having a cigarette in his hand and his knowledge of theatre and this and that and his stories. He was wonderful. So I was really looking forward to meeting him again after. And I didn't, you know, unusually, a lot of the actors I came across over the years, but Philip I never saw again until the books, uh, the, the signing, the Doctor Who signing, um, what was it, two years ago? Must have been two I years ago. I think it was more recent. And I, even, I think it was in the last year, year or so, was yeah, it? Maybe, yeah, maybe the year before last. Yeah. Um, and he was great. I mean, he was sort of hanging around the church hall afterwards because his daughter was coming to pick him up and he was offering to give me a lift and I lived quite close to the church hall. And I said, no, no, don't worry, I'll go up on the underpass, it's fine. Um, and we chatted and we were going to meet at the next gig, Doctor Who gig, and I was stunned when he died. It was, it was so sudden at Christmas. Mm. But there you go. You know, we're all dropping off gradually. 
so ends another episode of Doctor Who. Elian was dead, and the lake would reveal the secret of his dying only to its next victim. It's an especially chilling chapter end to the novel of this story. But on screen, it is suggested by some whirling, smoking water and some discarded water bags, and the grim silence of his fellow travellers is enough to convey the rest, and begins an episode about jeopardy and life and death on a knife, and indeed cliff edge, on a suitably dramatic note. The cave sets are well rendered, and in some cases suggested merely through the use of light, and director Richard Martin tries to make these potentially cumbersome sequences so hard to make slick and practical in a studio as interesting and unclunky as possible. It's fair to say that this is one episode where the action is perhaps more drawn out than strictly necessary, but this kind of adventuring, where environments are hostile and menace is around every corner on alien planets, it's fair to say that the 1964 audience would have been perfectly happy with the peril provided on this extended journey. And of course, the whole point is that it is a long and difficult one. Cave sets are by their nature not especially interesting, but these are skillfully put together and shot, with Richard Martin making his mark as someone on the lookout for ambitious visuals. His game attempts don't always pay off, but the mirror shot, and the one taken between the legs of Antidus, framing Ian at the rear end of the ravine, are fabulous, as is the ambitious and impressive inlay shot of our heroes journeying through the cave. Terry Nation adds what will become an old favourite, the cowardly crew member, but this one has the added frisson that he is the brother of one of our other intrepid travellers. And their little tussle causes a rockfall, which causes their return to be blocked, making moot any question of turning back. Now nobody has the choice to be cowardly or brave, uh, another set of preoccupations to which Nation will return. Elsewhere, the Doctor and Susan get some jolly tinkering to do that Hartnell clearly enjoys, and the Daleks' accompanying spotlight returns, bathing the old man and his granddaughter in its semi-paralysing glow. Hartnell is delightful as he revels in his own genius at blowing up the control panel, and his denunciation of the sheer murder the Daleks wish to carry out on the Thals is also brilliantly done. Oh, yeah, and the only interest we have in the Thals is their total extermination. Doctor Who, The Ordeal, also featured Virginia Wetherill as Dione, Marcus Hammond as Antidus, Jonathan Crane as Christus, David Graham and Peter Hawkins as the Dalek voices, and Robert Jewell, Kevin Manser, Peter Murphy and Gerald Taylor as the Daleks. The title music was by Ron Grainer with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The incidental music by Tristram Carey. The story editor was David Whittaker. The designer, Raymond Cusick, and the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, the Doctor and Susan meet up again with Ian and Barbara, and the final battle with the Daleks is afoot. But there should have been another way, as the original storyline shows that a very different ending was planned. 
That's next time on Doctor Who. Too much information. Next episode, The Rescue. Or could this be the end of the Daleks? I mean, it is. It's the end of the Daleks, but not of, not of the Daleks. Too much information. The ordeal was written and presented by me, Toby Hayden. With thanks to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, John Kelly, Graham Kibble-White, Stephen Griffiths, Ben Jolly, Alex Moore, Simon Gerrier, Phil Newman, Ed Pegg and Virginia Weatherall. The series consultant is Richard Bignall. Additional voices were provided by Chrissy Bone and the music has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, which is called Far Too Much Information, that is for now exclusive to patrons. Bar one, which I released for the anniversary in November 2021, which goes into far too much detail about what became of each of the extras portraying the schoolchildren in the very first episode. There are also far too much information episodes, these ones definitely for patrons only, on the prehistory of Doctor Who as well as the pilot, the first episode and the first four versions of An Unearthly Child. There are accompanying show notes and pictures too of Alice Frick, of Donald Bull and all of that is on my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Toby where you could also get exclusive material, early releases and other bonuses. Oh, and there are pictures of my dog as well. I know. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast and also early with these Too Much Information episodes. Everything pretty much is available at the lowest tier, which is £3 a month. There are a couple of extra trinkets to lure you up to the higher tiers, but everything essential is there at the lowest entry point. And you can also get 10% off if you sign up for a year. Patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. References I would like to cite my sources, if I may. Richard Bignall, as well as being on hand to consult with and to provide paperwork and insight, also edits the amazing Nothing at the End of the Lane magazine of Doctor Who Research, which is a fabulous goldmine for fans of early series Arcana, and it's available PDF form for an absolute steal. Doctor Who The Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, is a very handy compilation of everything we know about the making of the episodes, updating the brilliant groundbreaking work of Andrew Pixley's fabulous DWM archive pieces from the dawn of time. The Complete History also features the work of Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and Alistair McGowan. How Stammers and Walker, with their definitive books on the 60s, 70s and 80s, and each Doctor in their handbooks, deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental story of the entire show behind the scenes, and Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record of this period in the show's history in both words and glorious black and white pictures. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference as well. And I also subscribe to the British newspaper archive, Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are vital resources 
but also places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, so proceed with caution. I would also like to acknowledge the production notes on the BBC DVD of this story, which are by Martin Wiggins. I walk in the shadows of giants, anorak-clad giants with bags full of photostats. Thanks so much to the patrons who make these podcasts possible. I love each and every one of them, including those I'm about to name. Adam Parker, James Bell, Lee Wakeley, Drew, Stephen Smith, a.k.a. Dalek Fan, Risto Matti Sarillo, Peter Blackett, Andy Parkinson, Lisa C. Greco, David Green, Fraser Gregory, Dave Hoskin, Jessica Jones, Andrew Jordan, Ashley Knight, Clive Lewis, Guy Lambert, James Lark, Gavin McLean, Nathan Martin, David Matthewman, John McClay, Ross McPhillips, Stuart Mitchell, Nathan Moore, Matthew Newton, Dave Owen, Melvin Pena, Keith Pirry, Jonathan Potter, Kevin Parker, Richie, Dylan Reese, John Rivers, Jim Sangster, Matt Sawyer, Keith Say, Len Stewart, Neil Tate, Nick Temple, Sabrina Tirabassi, Reynard Toombs, David Trainier, Apollo C. Vermouth, Gary Wales, Adam Westwood, Rich Wiggins, Michael Williams, Andrew Willis, Andrew Wilson, Stephen White, Nick Tedston, Richard Straw, Stephen Moffat, Rob Leonard, Peter Harness, Peter Burns, Ruben Herfindahl, and Ronald Hayden. If you too would like to become a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. Oh, I lure you with trinkets for as little as £3 a month. You get bonus releases, exclusive material, exclusive access and various other bits and bobs. You're also a bit further ahead than the Hoi Polloi. Sorry, you're not really Hoi Polloi if you're listening to this and are Hoi Polloi. Uh, <laughs> you're a few months ahead with the Happy Times and Places podcasts. Six months uh, at the current reckoning. Uh, and about a month, maybe six weeks ahead with the Too Much Information releases and the Indefinable Magic releases. Perhaps perhaps even two months ahead with some of those as well. So basically you get stuff a bit earlier and you get three releases per week. Three new bits of stuff every week. Uh, three times at least, sometimes more than that. And also on top of that, pictures of my dog. And he's a cutie. That's patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. Uh, if you cannot do the monthly thing, and I completely understand if that's the case. Although, if you do sign up for a year all in one go, you get a 10% discount. Um, but look, ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke is an alternative. There, you can just nip over whenever you like uh, and throw a few uh, few silver pieces into my virtual hat and uh, yeah, buy me a pretend coffee uh, if you think I... I sound like I need a, an injection of caffeine or some energy or uh, anyway. Uh, but yeah, I get it. I know as well. Uh, we don't pay for these things uh, these days. You know, podcasts are there's loads out there and they're all free. And this one is too. Uh, and that's completely understandable. And uh, I'm just very grateful to you for listening. But look, if you do enjoy it, I'd be grateful if you could do the thing that costs you nothing. And that's to go to iTunes and give these five stars. So a lot of work goes into this. I mean, even for the music, it deserves, deserves the five stars, I think. Uh, but a lot of work goes into these. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I work very hard to edit them, make sure they're as professional as possible. Um, everybody who is involved um, 
apart from me is paid so you know i get a professional voice artist i get uh, you know i've paid for the music all that sort of thing so i try to make this as professional as possible uh and so a five-star review really helps to get this in front of people who might you know who might not have realized that these podcasts are out there uh, and a couple of lines of review as well would be really really nice just to uh, make my algorithms look as sexy as possible to uh, anybody who might be looking for sexy algorithms all right ta I'm also a stand-up comedian. You can find me at Excess Malarkey Comedy and Club in Manchester every Tuesday at 8pm. We do an online show the first Sunday of every month at 8pm GMT um, at twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey. That's the letter X, the letter S, and then Malarkey, M-A-L-A-R-K-E-Y. And if you go out there anytime, there's an archive of all of the online shows that we did during the pandemic, and we've uh, continued with them, even though the live shows are now back up and running it's me with three or four comics from the international comedy circuit doing our thing and sometimes mentioning doctor who there's usually a mention of doctor who and you can join in by typing and doing all of that business that modern people do when they watch things uh and that's absolutely free we ask for donations but they're they're only optional so uh, it's another good night's entertainment should you be looking for one <laughs> Out now, all new episodes of Dick Dixon in the 21st century. Admiral, Professor Ship's just gone into warp. Do you know where he's warped to? Calculating sector vectors now. Yes, he was on a bearing for the constellation of Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia? Yes, Dick. Cassiopeia. The constellation of Cassiopeia? But that's uncharted space. Nobody has been there and chartered it. Nevertheless, that's where the professor is. The constellation of Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia. As I said, Cassiopeia. PG, what do you know about it? About what? The constellation of Cassiopeia. The constellation of Cassiopeia. Solar sister of nine planets, one potentially capable of supporting life. Then that must be where he's going. But why? There's only one way to find out. We'll have to go after him. You're right, Dick. The professor must be going there for a reason. But what that reason is, I just don't know. And I'm not sure I want to know. But one thing I do know is that if we don't find out, we'll never know for sure one way or the other. <sighs> Lieutenant Fox, lay in a course for Cassiopeia. Yes, Admiral. Laying in a course for Cassiopeia. Dick Dixon and the Menagerie Artois is available for purchase now from www.averagerock.com. And just to say, Virginia Wetherill's house, which I have been in, is probably the most gorgeous house I've ever been in, just in terms of interior decoration. There's a suit of armour and some of the most gorgeous furniture and so many plants and she really is a stylish woman uh, and uh, was still doing business uh, you know fashiony stuff 
uh, online sending photos and all sorts of stuff while I while I was there amazing woman uh, and yeah with a stunning stunning eye so uh, thanks to her oh Bernard's growling perhaps because I'm saying nice things about somebody that isn't him Bernard by the way is my dog um, that's another reason to come to my Patreon 